had to read Moby Dick. Did you ever have to read Moby Dick? Herman Melville? Nobody ever had to read this. I had to read it, and it's torturous, to be honest with you. You don't have to go read it. This is not an assignment. But the the storyline of that movie, or that book, it's a movie as well, but the storyline is all about this guy, and he is admirably named Ahab. He's a captain of a ship. There's an Ahab in the Old Testament, and he's a really messed up guy. And this Ahab, who's uh, the captain of the ship, uh, he, he's, he's really something in this story. He, he gets obsessed with one whale. The whale actually took out his ship and chomped off his leg. And he ends up chasing that whale all over the South Pacific, trying to catch it. He loses one ship, he gets a whole other ship, and a whole crew filled with people, and they chase this whale down. And at the end, the book ends with this. He's chased the whale down, and they had all these little boats set out for a fleet of small boats from the, from the big boat, and they're chasing down the, the, the whale, and the whale crunches two of those boats, and he's down to just him and his crew and this whale, and he launches a harpoon into the whale, and the whale takes off and snaps the line, and he launches another harpoon into the whale, and this time the rope wraps around Ahab's neck, and the whale goes down, and the boat goes down, and King Ahab, or, uh, Captain Ahab, goes down all at once. And this obsession that he has with this whale takes his whole life. The people in his boat, all of the folks in his life, his friends, there's 30 crew members that he's close with that the book develops. They all say, don't do this. Give up on this ridiculous obsession. It's going to end you. And Ahab says, I can't. I have to go for it. And at the end, it does end him and the whale and he die together. What a story, right? Great beginning to a sermon. We love stories like this where people die at the end in this poetically just way. Are you feeling inspired yet? Well, Jesus' words this morning, woman, here is your son. I'll explain this as we go forward, but woman, here is your son. They come from John chapter 19, and I want to talk about maybe not obsession, but the word devotion, devotedness. Jesus is amazingly devoted, and he spoke these words from the cross. Now, here's the context. There are people in, uh, in, in the surrounding area around this cross as he's dying, and you'll hear who they are. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, Mary. His mother's sister, that was probably James and John's mother. James and John, the disciples, were probably Jesus' cousins. Many gospel, or, uh, Bible commentators think that. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, who he cast all those demons out of. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, his cousin, and somebody who was really a close friend of his, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. You know, when you read the Bible, it's easy to read it just for content, right? You know, when I pick up a DVD instruction manual and I have to read through that thing, I always read it as fast as possible. It's so boring. I hate that thing, you know? And there's all sorts of things in our life that we have to read. And when we read the Bible, we often read it just like that. I was reading through the Gospels a few years ago, and I was reading a chapter at a time, and I was kind of getting it, you know? And I realized that in John, specifically, he writes a little different than other Gospel writers. And I started to pick up on he's using these words, word pictures, light and life and water, the water of eternal life. And he he develops all of these pictures, and I realized I was reading too fast. And when you read fast, it's able, you're able to overlook some of the things that are so powerful and important in the writing. Well, this word this morning, woman, here is your son, it would be easy to overlook its value. I mean, it's really kind of commonplace, right? But when you look at the Gospel of John, you have to ask one question. When is the last time 
Jesus, son of Mary, and Mary, his mother, actually had a conversation. And if you turn through the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, any one of them, you'll find that the last time that Mary is even heard from and the last time that Mary and Jesus have a conversation is 17 chapters ago at the first ministry miracle that he ever performs. The first time Jesus ever does a miracle, it's with his mother and his mother's there. That's the only time previous to this since the birth of Jesus that we've actually heard from this woman. Now, let me tell you what I think that means, because sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you don't just look at what it says, you look at what it doesn't say. Where are all the conversations between this man and his mother? You know, I live three states away from my mom. And if I go a week without calling her, help me. You know what I'm saying? Someone needs to help me if I go three weeks or a week without calling my mother, because she wants to hear what's going on in my life. Mothers and sons are supposed to connect and stay attached. There's supposed to be a relationship there. And yet in the Gospels, we don't have that storyline. We are missing completely. As Jesus goes off into ministry, he starts to head off into these amazing things that he does. He, he heals p- sick people, lames and lepers and people who are deaf, all of this different stuff. He feeds 5,000 people and he feeds 4,000 a few weeks later. And he's traveling around healing people of demonic oppression. And he's speaking words that are still inspiring us today. And in in the middle of all that, it's taking a tremendous amount out of them. It started to occur to me as I was studying this week in the past few weeks that these words are actually built on top of a thought. And that thought is, what did Jesus have to give up to walk the grace-filled life that he walked? Did you ever think that Jesus, he lived the life that you're supposed to live, only he lived it right? You ever feel kind of messed up in this world? Well, if you ever feel really bad about yourself, compare yourself to Jesus and you'll feel worse, right? Honestly, I mean, he did what we're supposed to do and he did it right. And yet all of that rightness cost him things that we think of as good. It cost him a relationship with his mom. You know, mothers are really special. When I was growing up uh, in our church, we had Mother's Day sermons, you know, and every week in our church, we heard these sermons that were like, they would tell you that you're messed up and that you need Jesus. That was the average sermon. You need help. You need it in this specific way. They were always hard-hitting. You know, They were focused on changing us and seeing God's power in our lives and all of this stuff. And then we get to that wonderful Mother's Day sermon, and it would change tone altogether. The pastor would deliver this great soliloquy about mothers and how beautiful they are and what wonderful lives they lead and how we're all benefit. And anybody not appreciate their mother, we all appreciate our mothers. Mothers stand up early on we didn't have that much money in our church so we gave them carnations eventually we got to the place where we could afford roses and we were giving out all this stuff it was wonderful mother's day descriptive sermons about god's wonderful love given us through mothers and then we got to father's day completely different sermon you know the pastor rails on deadbeat dads what's the matter with the men in this church what's wrong with us as as, as males what it's as though there was this just kind of strange focus on mother. And we, we still have this, right? A hardened criminal, you know they're really bad if they turn their back on a mother, right? Anybody who can disrespect a mom, that's awful. It's still that way today. And yet Jesus somehow in his ministry overlooks the woman who maybe he loves more than anyone else in the world and certainly loves him more than anybody else does on this earth. This woman loved her son. She gave birth to him. A ton was expected of her. There was a tremendous amount expected of Mary. She's, she's ambushed 
by a little well. I was at that well this past year. She's ambushed at this well, and this angel talks to her and says, you know that plan for your life where you marry that nice Jewish boy and you go off and have nice Jewish children and you experience this well-balanced life? It's not going to work out. And she's so afraid, first off, by this angel. She has to be just kind of shocked back into the place where she can even hear what he's saying because she's so afraid, first off. And then he says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. She doesn't know whether her husband-to-be is even going to marry her. She could lose her husband in this deal because she's with child and it's God's fault. Really? Who would buy that story, right? And then Jesus is born in Bethlehem through these miraculous uh, set of circumstances. All of this stuff happens, and they travel to Jerusalem just a few miles away, and they go on the eighth day to the temple. And it's the Jewish rite, it's the tradition, it's the responsibility of a dad and mom to sacrifice and dedicate their child to the Lord on the eighth day. And they're there, and this man Simeon comes up, and he holds baby, the baby Jesus in his arms, and he says, let me prophesy over him and let me pray. And he says these words, he says, this baby is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. The economy is going to turn over. Politically, the world's going to change because of this man. I think he even understated the case. But at the time, Mary must have been shocked. And then he looked at her and he focused right at this young teenage mother. Can you imagine if I was this girl's dad, I would be furious with this prophet. You know, he looks at her and he says, and a sword's going to pierce your soul too. You know, we focus on the things that Jesus went through. We focus on the pain of the cross hanging there, you know, and his diaphragm being pressed in on because of the way he's hanging and his sinews and his ligaments all giving way and his muscle. So everything is just aching. It's a torturous death. It's reserved for the worst of the worst, right? We focus on that every Good Friday. And we, we think about the betrayal of his friends, Peter and Judas, one betraying him, one denying him. We think about the spiritual impact of all of the sins of the world being laid on this man as he was the substitute for you and for me. He took us on himself and he said, uh, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We think about all that stuff, but do we think about the cost, the average cost, the normal cost in comparison of his everyday life and what it would have cost him to give himself to this ministry? He thought it was worth pursuing God, not just the mission of God, but the person of God walking with him in this grace-filled relationship, and he was willing to turn his back on his mom in order to chase his dad. Have you ever thought about this? We have all of these gospel writers, and what they never include for us is is an understanding of how he communicated with this woman because he probably didn't. He was focused on what God was doing, and and she had to be focused with him on what God was doing. There is one story where she comes to see Jesus and she and her, and her other sons, his half-brothers, come to see him. And, and this is what happens. She comes to this place where he's packed in with a crowd and the disciples share with him that his mother wants to see him. And this is Jesus' reply. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Really? Let me tell you, if I showed up at my mom's house and said, who's my mom? My dad says, I'm going to hit you. And I'm going to be like, whatever. You know, Really? 60 years old, I think I can take my dad right now, you know? That's where I'm at. But my mom wants to hit me. She's about five foot one, 110 pounds. I'll lower my head down and let her, you know? 
That's the relationship we have with our, with our mothers. I had a friend, I worked in Philadelphia for a while and on the outskirts, uh, Valley Forge area, and uh, there was this guy who was a 300-plus pound lineman for a big university, and he had uh, had this whole football career. He's a gigantic guy, bald head and big, puffy beard, and he used to tell us, he says, you know, I, I, I have all these scars from all of this life, and he says, but when I go home, my mom wants to yell at me. She tells me to put my face down there so she can slap me, and I still do it my mom's about this big and he was this giant he could have whipped me you know moms are special and yet jesus somehow in this story it's as though he leaves his mother behind what are we to take from that and so and and at this critical moment when his mother comes to talk with him his reply who is my mother and who are my brothers who are these family members you think i have they're from nazareth Pointing to the disciples, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Are you offended? Honestly, shouldn't you be a little bit offended by this? Our sensibilities should be a little bit confused about Jesus saying this line. How about this one? Let's see if we can get worse. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother. You know, I teach my kids, you're not supposed to hate anybody. And they always say, well, what about Satan? Are we allowed to hate Satan? They always find the loopholes. I say, okay, fine, hate Satan, you know. But don't hate the kids at school. Can we dislike them strongly? They ask. There's all of this question, you know. And yet Jesus says this word. And I don't think he's meaning it in the sense of of preaching this gigantic sermon. I don't think he's pounding it into people in this kind of oratorial sort of way. Instead, what he's saying is, listen, this is what it will cost you. He's asked, What will it cost you to be a disciple? What will it cost me to be a disciple? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You know, I don't think Jesus said that preaching. I think what Jesus was saying is, this is what it's cost me. There are these guys that were my half-brothers, and they don't even like me anymore. The Bible is clear that the people related to Jesus, they didn't have time for him. They didn't appreciate him. They didn't believe in him. Because why? He left them behind. And his mother, where is she? I don't think Jesus actually hated his mother, and I don't think you should hate yours. But what I think he's saying in this passage is is if you really start to take God seriously, your values and your ethics and your principles, all of those things are going to change to the point where the people who think they know you and love you and that that think you love them are going to be challenged by this experience. They're going to look at you and they're going to think, did he start hating us? Did Did he start disliking us? Why does this person who seems to be taking off in a ministry, why does he start looking at us as though we don't exist? And Jesus says, it's going to cost you if you're going to be a disciple. You're not going to be able to do the same things you used to do. You're going to have to leave some stuff behind you, not just morally bad things, things we all know we need to leave behind. Sometimes we're going to have to leave good things behind, right? Mothers are good things. Mary was a a wonderful thing. People who are disciples of Jesus might not make it to the Bahamas for that trip they always plan. People who are disciples of Jesus might not let their kids be involved in all those extracurricular activities because in order to pursue the Father God, Jesus had to give up on things that took his time that were in the way. They weren't bad things, they were good things. Did you ever think you'd have to get rid of the good things in your life in in order to go after the better things, the great things? That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And he asks us to consider the cost of discipleship. Literally, it's going to cost you your family. It's going to cost you your money. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you potentially your vocation. Who knows what it will cost you next? Following this Jesus and being a true disciple of him will be costly. It will be expensive. If you're not offended yet, listen to these words. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, deny the things they want in their heart, and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Take, take up the cross. I don't know what the cross actually looked like. Scholars disagree about this. We don't know. But what we can say is that picking up a hunk of wood and walking around with it is a heavy burden, right? Taking this up every day and deciding we're going to follow Christ, this is going to cost us. This is going to be expensive. It's going to hurt. We, it's an all-or-nothing proposal. Either we do it all the way or we're missing the point. Blaise Pascal, that French philosopher, hundreds of years ago said that every person on this earth struggles. They have a, they have a God-shaped hole within, within them, me included. We all have something in our hearts that's missing this one connection that we're supposed to have. And the one person that did it right is telling us that it will cost you everything to do it. Jesus did it correctly. You know, I don't believe Jesus knew all that much when he came to earth. You know, when you picture the baby in the manger, do you think that he knew all there was to know? We know God's omniscient, right? That means he knows everything. There's nothing known or knowable that he doesn't know. But that doesn't mean Jesus, Jesus as a baby. You know, the Bible says he grew. He developed as a human being. He was normal. He just didn't have all of the problems we have. He didn't have the failure we have. And because of that, he walked this out, this relationship with God, perfectly and he says if you want to know this god if you want that that hole inside of yourself filled then believe me you're going to have to put it all on the line because knowing god costs you how much everything everything this is a little frightening isn't it wouldn't you agree it goes on to say that uh, that, that we have to uh, do this or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul if you're going to lay out the whole world for, for what Jesus is doing in your life and what God's all about well then it's worth all of the stuff that you see it's worth the planet you're walking on Richard John Newhouse is a, was he's passed away he was a, a Lutheran pastor who became a Catholic priest don't you like how I find these quotes you know um, a church of the brethren, uh, and we have all of these different connections, and none of them have to do with Catholics or Lutherans, but this guy has great things to say. He wrote this, the way of the cross is the way of broken hearts. Powerful, isn't it? As Jesus is sitting there dying in the cross, Mary Magdalene's heart is breaking, his aunt's heart is breaking, Mary, the mother of Jesus, heart is breaking, Peter is somewhere crying because he's denied him three times already. Judas is about to commit suicide. The other disciples are running for their lives, wondering if they're going to make it till tomorrow. The people who followed Jesus on this walk and Jesus himself were people who laid it on the line and frankly, their hearts were broken. You know that 10 and maybe 11 of the 12 disciples died violent deaths because someone killed them because of the truth they were saying? We have this thought that Christianity enables us to live Fairly moderate, middle-class lives, right? When I was marrying my wife, my mother-in-law prayed before our, our wedding. I'm still mad about this. She said, God, don't give them too much money. <laughs> really? Why? He said, well, you might lose it. If you get a lot of money, you might go off and do something crazy. No, you got to walk the road of pain a little bit. That's what my mother-in-law said. She'll be here in a few weeks. You can talk to her. 
You know, th- this whole thing of the cross, the road to discipleship, the grace-filled walk that you're called to and that I'm called to with, with God the Father, the way of the cross is the way of broken hearts. It's not an easy road. And I want us to hear this morning that when we hear this word, woman, here is your son, what we're listening to is, is, is a word that's sitting in the middle of a desert. It's a drop of water after a long absence of rain. Jesus is saying these words to a woman who has wondered about her son. And I think she understood But I think she still wished for those moments of connection as every mother does, right? And she's sitting there and here's the last words. These are the last seven words that Jesus is ever going to speak. The last seven lines. And number three, he finally gets to his mother. Woman, here is your son. Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually did give his life for God. He stood up against the Third Reich in the the era of World War II and one of Hitler's last acts before he himself committed suicide and before the United States and Russian militaries attacked Germany and and conquered him was to ask for Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. He had him killed. But he wrote this line talking about grace and think about the relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father, the costly grace that it, the, the, the costly grace that he experienced in his life in this walk with the Father. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field, writes Bonhoeffer. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Are you ready to do this? Are you ready to leave it all on the, to put it all on the line, to leave it all behind you, to say, you know what, this walk with God is so worthwhile. In one sense, it's free. Jesus paid for it, right? The cross was everything. On the other hand, you can't afford to put anything in the way of God or you will get a halfway picture of what he's all about. You know what a halfway picture of the kingdom of God looks like? You ever had one of those feelings where you've seen one of those people who really walks with God and you wonder why you don't have it in your own soul? What is it about me that's missing what that person has? Sometimes when our senior citizens really get sick and they start to pass away, uh, I've been there for, for I don't know how many times in this church where somebody has come close to death and then they, they cross over that line. And sometimes I see the greatest moments of faith, moments I just doubt. Sitting there in pain, this person says, God is still good. And I think, I don't have that in my heart. They have something more than I have. They're putting it on the line and as they walk through life's way, Things are being divested of them, their physical health, their spiritual understanding. They don't know why God's doing what he's doing. They've walked through hurt, and yet they trust in the Lord. And in that moment, they become a disciple, the likes of which I don't think I've ever been. We need a God that fills up this God-shaped hole, and he is gigantic enough to do it. The problem is our lives are filled with all this other stuff. And Jesus was wonderful, excellent at getting rid of good things that came in the way of the best. There's a word for this, and it's a word that I'm not allowed to tell you, so of course I'm going to. I waited for a week when Tim was gone in order to do this. Um, you know, the Church of the Brethren doesn't believe in this. I want you to know that they don't believe in this word, okay? And if you're Baptist or if you're from one of those sorts of churches, they don't believe in it either. So this is really fun to talk about things like this, right? You know, Jay just left for a trip to, to, to uh, Illinois, and Dave, our other elder, is in Florida, so I can talk about these things while they're all gone. All right, here's the word, and I think you're called to it, and I'm going to talk about what I mean. Sacrament. Doesn't sound all that terrible, does it? 
you know, sacraments are important things. I'm going to read you a couple of definitions, but they're going to explain something, and then we're going to go on and understand that your life and my life and Jesus' life are called to be sacramental lives, okay? Now, here's a definition of what the word sacrament means. It's a rite in which God is uniquely active, a tradition, if you will, an act, something you do. Churches that believe in sacraments believe that Holy Communion, the ordinance of a priest possibly, marriage, baptism, anointing of the sick. There's, there's a long list in the Roman Catholic tradition and other churches have different lists, but they are sacraments. And what they mean by that is grace, God himself is uniquely active by pouring grace into your life through this event. On March 24th, we'll have a service at 5 p.m. in the evening. We call it the love feast. We gather here and on this table will be these emblems, these symbols. They will be uh, grape juice and bread. Now, what I have to tell you is I don't believe that that bread is actually the body of Jesus. And I don't believe that that grape juice becomes the blood of Christ. Frankly, that grape juice comes from Wegmans if we're lucky and Redner's if we're not, right? And it's just normal stuff. And the bread is just normal stuff. Forgive me for this. I know it sounds sacrilegious, but when you're talking about something like this, it helps to have a little humor. And, and these things are normal. And you know what? We're going to have a baptism on March 17th, and we'll fill this, this uh, fiberglass tub filled with water. And you will get here as early as you want. You still won't hear me speak any words over it that will turn it into anything other than just normal water. It's just East Coventry tap water, you know? There's nothing special about that water. Those are symbols. And frankly, I don't think God's grace comes specifically through them. Although his grace is everywhere on that night, if you come to love feast, or when you get baptized and decide to take that step of obedience, God's grace goes with you. The relationship, those are relationship-enhancing moments with the Father God, right? But what they don't do is absolutely sit down and tell you, hand you something. They don't hand you salvation. You're no more saved because you took a piece of that bread. That just doesn't work. And what this, what this thought means is that, it, that bread exactly does that. This is what the Roman Catholic Catechism says about uh, the, the, the word sacrament. Now, forgive me for the big words here. I'm going to read it quickly, and if you want a copy, I'll give it to you later. Efficacious signs of grace. Sacraments are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. It's like a drive through you know, where you get food and it's dispensed out the window. That's what this kind of thought process is. The value, the visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them. Now I have to tell you that our church doesn't believe either of these things. We just don't. What I think Jesus' life is all about is taking the Father's relationship, the connection he had with God, and internalizing it. That is grace. That's the definition of what grace looks like. Grace forgives on one hand, but empowers on the other, right? It doesn't just get you back to zero. It takes you off and sends you to the person you were always called to be. You were adapted into the family of God and given his DNA. And he says, grace is the thing will take you from this weak sinner position to the place where you can walk with Jesus as a fully devoted follower, somebody who walks into Ultimately with him. Grace does all that. It's this connection. And so what is grace? What is a sacrament? Living sacramentally means that we walk with God so closely that he changes the inside of us and it transforms the world around us. The influence of our lives becomes a sacramental life. I don't think you're called to the sacrament of baptism, although I think you should be baptized if you haven't been. I, I don't think you're called to the sacrament of Holy Communion. I think it's an ordinance. That's the word our church uses. There's not grace that comes through that. The grace is yours. 
And how you respond to it will decide whether you have that walk with God that you so want and so need. It's your response that matters, right? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. What does it mean to have faith? James says that faith without works is dead. And what he means by that is if you put anything in the way of the living God and decide that you will take from him and say, you're not all of this to me, then you will nickel and dime God and you will make him less than he is supposed to be in your life. And what will happen necessarily will be you will not have all the grace you were supposed to have. In in short, you won't have all the God you're supposed to have. He wants to be there with you. The question is, are we willing to pay that cost? It's pretty steep, right? Everything, nothing less. These are words we don't usually like. And let me read another passage of Scripture for you. It's nicer. I felt like we needed something at the end that was a little nicer. Jesus said these words as well, you know. And Jesus said a lot of words. And you're hearing kind of two sides of a coin, and they're important words, honestly. And they're two sides that are very important to understand. But this is the other side. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So you're weary. Did you walk in here this morning feeling belabored? You know, like life has become too much work and you just wish you could have stayed in bed, but your spouse made you come or you were guilted into it or whatever it might be. And you're walking in here this morning and you have that sort of feeling. And then your pastor tells you that you, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, have to take up that big piece of wood, the cross, and follow him and deny yourself. Did your burden just get lighter? By all that we've read this morning, did your burden get lighter? Did somehow Jesus miraculously transform this into a message that's different than what it sounds like? Because what he's saying all the time is, it costs you everything. It's cost me my relationship with my mother. Who knows what it will cost you? If it's going to cost you all this different stuff, why does he then say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Ephesians chapter four says it is by grace or two says by grace we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not that you're going to transform your life by your own actions. It's not that you're going to step up to the plate and I'm going to get rid of this, that, and the other thing. It's not as though you should start hating your mother. By the way, don't do that. Don't don't apply that piece of this message. It won't work. Some of you are mothers. How will that pan out for you, right? It's not going to work. The point is to take everything into the, the funnel of what Jesus is all about and say, listen, I would rather know God than know my mom. I would rather know God than I would ra- to raise well-balanced kids who can make it to a major university. I would rather know God than have the income that I've always wanted or the one I already have. I would rather know God than I would like to have unity with my wife or my husband. I would rather know God than I would have all of the things this world can afford. And when you get through that funnel, and on the other side, what Jesus is saying is you will find something absolutely amazing. You will find that God is worth it. He's not saying give it away, all of it, all all at once. All he's saying is put it on the line and say, Jesus, what do you want me to have? You're called to be a disciple of the, fa- the Father. You're, dis- you're, you're called to walk with him in such a close relationship that it transforms the world around you. And what he promises is that what looks like a difficulty at the front end will turn out to be absolutely a light burden on the other. He will transform it by his grace. It disappeared. I think we're done. You know, he will transform us by his grace to the point where all of a sudden you will look and you will say all of these things are, are, are valueless compared to this one thing. 
Captain Ahab decided it was worth everything he had to go after that stupid white whale in the South Pacific, right? It's a great story. If you haven't read it recently, you probably should. But even when I was told to read it by my English teacher, I got to tell you, really? You know, like it's torturous. You get to the end of it and you're going, this man is obsessed about a whale. It's a giant mammal that's acting like a fish. You know, why, why are we so interested in this? But we get to the end of our lives and we realize that what we're chasing is God and that what we're putting on the line every day for God is worth it, that we're putting on, our, on the line our businesses and our life and all of these things, that we don't love our kids more than we love this God. When we get to the end of it and everything is taken away from us, what we will have is absolute and extreme joy. This is how peace is found in the life of a believer. You know, when we have twisted little thoughts about things that don't really work, we actually give only half of ourselves to our God. You know what happens is we grow in our desire. We feel like this religion doesn't work. We get very conflicted about the whole thing. We had a, a training on Monday night. It was really funny. It was funny because I wrote this email. But Dave was up there, Dave, our administrative pastor, and he was writing about this new, tri- this new network of, of kind of, it's a computer software that we've bought that networks everything out. And we have this whole conversation, and I send, he has, he has this person named Buffy who's like the alter ego for Dave. And she's like the, the, the experimental person trying out this new software, okay? And I send Buffy an email. And Buffy has a, Buffy has a, 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 a little connection group called Buffy's Beating Buddies. This is true, okay? Buffy's Beating Buddies. We're talking about Buffy's Beating Buddies. And I send him an email. I said, I didn't get an invitation to Buffy's Beating Buddies' latest thing at church. And I feel like you're forming a clique. And that you're forming this it group, and I'm not part of it. And I don't like this. And the fact that you have kept me out, Dave, or Buffy, I'm absolutely offended by this whole thing. I don't think if this is what church is that you can count me in anymore. I'm done with it. And what's more is your husband, Horace, that's the name that he gave Buffy's husband. Horace hasn't said hi to me in the church foyer for three straight weeks. And I sent this email and Dave got it midway through his lecture and he put it up on the screen for us all to see. And everybody laughed, you know, because we've heard these things in church, right? We want church to solve our problems. That's what we want. We want friends. We want connection. We want things that work. We want children's ministry programs. We want stuff that pans out for us. Where in this sermon did you hear that? And I'm not talking about my words, Jesus' words. He's not handing us things that work. He's handing us things that will transform our lives till we work. He's not handing us more programs and more churchiness, more stuff. He's not handing you a social group or a club or a network. He's handing you grace. And he's saying, literally, put it all on the line because it will be worth it at the other side. If you've been disappointed with church, you have to think strongly about this message. Because sometimes what it costs you to go after God is somebody who's so close to you. Sometimes it costs you the people around you. Sometimes those people are good people. What a cost, right? So if we're willing and we want to be a disciple of Jesus, then today we have to deny ourselves. Today we enter into Lent and we look forward to Good Friday and we look, look forward to Resurrection Sunday and we say that we're not people who believe in sacraments. We're people who believe we are sacramentally called. Yours is the life that's going to make a difference. If you decide to put it all on the line for Jesus, then around you there will be people who are influenced and transformed. What was an obsession for Ahab became a devotion for Jesus. He wasn't known for being well-balanced. In fact, his own family members tried to intervene at one point and take him away because they thought he'd lost his mind. But what he's saying is this God is worth it. 
I don't know what's sitting in front of you right now, but there are things that are sitting right in front of you, I guarantee. And there are things that you have the choice either to get rid of because God is calling you to or to keep hold of. And if you keep hold of them, then you will lose a bit of what God wants to do and be in your life. What a cost. Think twice. Whatever it is that you think you need to be doing that gets in the way of your relationship with Jesus, think twice. The cost is amazing. And Jesus was willing to pay every bit of it for you and for me. And because he loved his father, he turned his back on his own mom. Join me in prayer.